everyone comes to that that realization is that in this town, people aren't gonna they want to watch you walk the tight rope. They're not gonna just come and hear you talk, do the same jokes over and over. And they might enjoy it if they're seeing you on like a showcase or something where they're like your friends or fans or whatever. But they're not gonna just watch you do it over and over again. They want to see what you else you can come up with. <laughs> This is Commonplace, the show about creative people and the things that inspire them. I'm Nathan Thomas. Today on the show, we have comedian Josh McDonald. He's been a fixture of the Huntington comedy scene for over a decade. In 2017, he released Hero in Town, West Virginia's first stand-up comedy special. In our conversation, we talk about going to college at Shepherd University during a period where the music scene there included influential bands like The Demon Beat, The Fox Hunt, and Early Roswell Kid, what Huntington comedy was like during the era of The Funny Bone, and how, although writing his jokes can be beneficial, nothing beats working it out on stage. We begin, however, with his dual interest in music and comedy. Comedy came first when I was a kid, so I was always obsessed with like Jim Carrey and Robin Williams and all those pe- like people that were like funny in movies. And then I discovered like, well, actually the stand-up of like uh, Dana Carvey and stuff like that, in, which had a lot of music in you know. And then was always super into music. Like my dad always had me listening to the Beatles and things like that. And then weird '80s pop music like Air Supply, and then like '70s pop like ABBA. My dad. I don't know, like musically, very much into just like... The classic rock hits. Classic rock, but then also just like super disco dancing st- stuff, like stuff that like, I don't know many other dads who listen to Air, Air Supply, but I mean, he loved it. He would be banging out to Here I Am, The One That You Love and stuff like that, just blasting it in the house. So that always appealed to me. But then at the same time, like like I said, comedy was like the first thing I ever really... Because like in my family, I felt like I had to be the funny guy because... It, things were just so stressful all the time. Like my parents were always fighting, divorced like 11 years into their marriage when we were all like right at the age where you're aware of what it is. But I was always happy about it. I was like, yeah, you two should probably spend some time apart. Like never once was I like, oh, this is our fault. I was like, no, this is their fault. It's, yeah, yeah this, so you're better not, off without yes, one another. Exa- exactly. And like they kept you doing breaking this, up makes my life better. Right. And they kept doing this thing where they would break up for a while and it would be like yeah finally some peace i get two christmases now this is great and then they'd be like well we're gonna try to work things out and ah, just like, shit. Oh, come on. essentially i think dad is so socially stunted that he uh, wouldn't be able to find anyone else and he realized oh she's not like a 17 year old girl anymore not that you know there's a statue of limitations back then it was more normal but still weird now if you look at it like uh, i think he was like 23 and she was 17 something like that mm-hmm. I, that would totally, totally be weird now. I mean, they're giving Leonardo DiCaprio guff for being 50-something, but even 23 just seems... A little yeah, much. Too much. Because, it, and young girls, the sad thing is they often think that those dudes are cool because they can buy them booze and drive and all this stuff, but really... It's to, sad because ex- they have to be going after something. Exactly, right? because the people in their actual age group are like, that dude it's sucks. Weird. He's weird. He He's sucks. Weird. Exactly. Smells like shit. But... Young girls are like, oh, Pantera. Let's beer. Get <laughs> beer. All right. <laughs> Let, let's just, that's what all the like, creepy dudes were when I was back. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so comedy first, but then quickly, like when I was 
13, I, all I was, I just wanted my parents to buy me some musical instrument. And uh, my stepdad had this old acoustic guitar and I would just, I literally broke all the strings, but taught myself like the E chord and A chord and would just break all the strings on it because I was obsessed with new metal, which was the thing at the time. But then slowly moved out of that and just m music became, you know, my life for a while. Mm -hmm. But then after that kind of went under because my cousin met a girl on the internet and our band broke up, I uh, <clears throat> just started doing stand up and done that ever since. Was that band that broke up bland or is that a different one? Bl no, it was bland. Although at the time, for some reason, we started calling ourselves Black Fences which is weird. Uh -huh. It was like, that's what we felt like was going to hold it all together. It was like, we need a name change. Yeah. After this long, let's just change the so name. Instead of a white picket fence, let's be a black fence. Exa exactly. It was it was cool. I mean, I guess emo was coming yeah. into favor. And we, it's not like we were trying to be like that. Our music style pretty much stayed the same, except for we would always get compared to like... It was always pretty garage rocky. Yeah, like yeah. Alternative type. Exactly. And, and we'd get compared to grunge a lot. Mm -hmm. So bland seemed too much of like it could be found in Kurt Cobain's journal. So we were like, yeah, let's not be so self-effacing. So then we just went with that. But it didn't last very long. Mm -hmm. We quickly went back to, to that. And going to college at Shepherdstown, was that just because it was the closest state school? or Absolutely. Absolutely. Although at the time, and this sounds like, like, well, I was kind of, I mean, I'm still dumb, but I was really dumb then. I didn't realize that in my state, I could just apply to whatever school and they were most likely going to accept me because all I was thinking is they're going to give me money to even go to this school and I could just like be, you know, go mm -hmm. here and get a education. So that was, I didn't realize that I could just uh, try to apply to other places. That was just like the place that everybody went. Yeah. I only applied to Marshall too, because I thought I was too dumb to get in anywhere else. Well, see, that's kind of what I thought. And then, then I moved down here and I was like, Oh, I'm as dumb as some of these people. Yeah, <laughs> I, like I, could, I could go to Marshall. I could have made it here. And, and really I graduated in, in uh, 2010. Uh -huh. And then what do you study? Um, mass communications. Yeah. Uh, not, I never had a job in it at uh -huh. any point. Uh, so I feel like, like journalism, radio adjacent. Exactly. It was mo like I had my own radio show in college, uh -huh. so I'd play, you know, whatever songs I wanted. Um, and also would, uh, like we made our own movies. So pretty much it, what's funny about it is it's like everybody I'm friends with now does all those things <laughs> and I don't do any of it. And I guess I got burnt out on it. And I also just felt, like when I watch that stuff now, it's so cringy to me. Like if here's a treat, if there, if you could find it, our group at the time, our, uh, I guess comedy group was called the panhandlers because where we were from, you yeah. know, and we made clever. a movie in college called Mr. Cool. And it's essentially like making fun of like crappy eighties movies where like there's a guy who feels like he needs to change himself to be, you know, to like get the girl, but then slowly realizes that like he could just be himself and it's going to be better. It was like a whole play on that with this like Axe spray, essentially. It was like Axe body spray, but it was called like Mr. Cool spray. And it turned him, literally it was just one of our friends playing the same guy, but like they, they just switched parts. Like it was two guys, but they were playing the same guy, but we were supposed to, you know, suspend the audience's disbelief in it as the same person. And really neither one of them looked any cooler than the other, but we thought one of them was cooler. So we got the w slightly weirder looking guy to be like the nerd and then the cool, you know, slightly cooler guy to be the, and this was a feature. It was long. It's like 40 something. It, it is so stupid, but 
I'm going the to ending, find the it. The ending makes it. I, I will I will send you the oh, link. No, don't oh, no, send you're gonna it. I want to search it's it. It's Mr. Cool Panhandlers. Another way, if you can't find it that way, type in like Shepherd University. It mm-hmm. might show up that way too because it was shot completely there if you ever want to. They're on campus. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, it's a pretty little campus. I've been to there once. I love that town. I mean, whenever I go back home, that's one of the first places I always go. I just think it's cool. I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's cool and like that period you were there and the couple handful of years after it it was such like a, a unique place for music in the state because you had the fox hunt going you had the demon beat going and there are precursors th- those are precursors to like so many cool like active bands currently oh yeah for sure and i mean th- those were the guys that like put it together that they could tour in the state and around the state and really like develop a following in a way I feel like other bands didn't do. And I feel like those Shepherdstown guys really understood networking in a way that like, that like people are understanding it more now with like social media and stuff like that. And that really helped them too. Like, cause they would make events and people would show up because that like, uh, I remember watching like the Fox hunt at Shepherd university. But then when I moved down to Huntington, I was like, Oh wait, they're coming here. So I went to remember shamrocks. Yeah, they performed in that back room there, and uh, I was just thinking like, this is so weird. This crowd is like eating this up. They love them so much. It was like just to me, these are just like dudes I had like media class with, things like that. You know what I mean? Like people I would just see around campus, and uh, I'm not gonna lie, I would develop relationships with a lot of them. Some of them I just felt like they were too cool to me, like too cool to talk to. And I mean, I even would play shows with them and everything, and just be like, man. These dudes don't want to talk to me. Adam Meisterhans is too cool for me. Oh, yeah. He's, he's def. I mean, anybody who has the balls to play the guitar like that mm-hmm. and just not think, hey, I might look like an idiot right now, we but totally so not look nice like an idiot. Oh, yeah. No, and very smart. Sweet, I had right? an English class with him and just one of the smartest dudes ever. Like, teachers would just be super impressed with, like, the dude's mind. Whereas with me, they would be like, do you need to talk to the counselor or <laughs> stuff like that? But... Yeah, super smart dude. And Tucker Riggleman, super smart dude. Yeah, uh, the cheap dates are great. His oh current yeah. band. Aw- awesome. Yeah. He's I'm really happy for him. And he's like sober and stuff now. And I know that he was struggling with that for a while. A lot of those dudes completely don't touch the stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. How's uh Jordan's band doing? Uh Roswell Kid, they are doing a small tour currently. For the most part, I think they maybe do like a month run of shows a year right now. I don't know if it was like a one purpose thing to slow down or if some of the other records didn't sell. I really can't speak to that. Um, but Adam, I know is staying super busy. Um, he is currently playing with a really popular indie band called slaughter beach dog. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard of him and, um, you know, they've gotten some really good, like, songs, like, blowing up on TikTok over the past year. So he's uh, finding success, like, disconnected from the West Virginia scene, but he's still, like, recording with William Matheny. He's done stuff with Tyler in the past, Tyler Childers. So um, he also played in, I want to say, helped produce the last John Ingram record, oh, too. that's awesome. So yeah. he, he definitely stays connected. I was always uh, happy to see that like Jordan uh, started playing that type of music because when he was when he was in Demon Beat, 
I like their music. Drumming, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. I was super into their music. I mean, um, I did see that I was like, this is definitely, these guys have heard a Black Keys record. I definitely was like, they, this is something like, they're bringing like what's kind of happening underground right now to this area. Does, and that's not a knock. I'm just saying, obviously, they were influenced by, by that. And like that blues, rocky stuff. But he had a side project at the time called Jude Universer. Some of the best music to this day. He had the song called Woe Nelly that I still get stuck in my head. And it used to be all on MySpace, but I don't know if he became ashamed of it or just wanted to get rid of it, but it's not there anymore. I mean, I know you, they got rid of a lot of the music on there anyway, but I can't find it anywhere. I and think there's some Jude Universer on Bandcamp still. I remember finding like a, a early version of a song that was on that first Roswell Kid album and being like, oh shit, this is like a demo or like a precursor or whatever getting really excited about it oh yeah it's in, and that's exactly right like it was uh you could tell that power pop type of thing is what he really wanted to do but just never had an outlet for it and so when when he came out with roswell could i was like this is like and awesome. they are so much fun live too like their stage energy is a lot of fun they're jumping around a bunch oh yeah yeah, and they that's another thing about those bands out of Shepherdstown. They were really, like, animated live. All of them were really, like... I mean, I guess the Fox Hunt wasn't so, so animated. But, like, in its own way, too, because you'll see these videos of the Fox Hunt playing in Shepherdstown where, like, they're playing in the middle of the room and everyone's kind of surrounding them and going nuts over, like, that song, Lord, I Get High. Oh, yeah. And, like, going insane for it. Did you ever see... Have you... You've been to Shepherdstown, obviously. Once, But yeah. did you ever see any local shows at the train station there? No, I was just there for a weekend for the Appalachian Studies Conference. I don't know what they do there now, but I'll tell you, that place has its own energy, dude. Some of the best shows still to this day of my life were, were there that I've seen and been a part of. Like that band, The Red Oranges from Shepherdstown. They just hypnotized audience, and they would do this funny, like, detached irony thing where they would pretend to be these machismo, like, tough guys, where they would have this part where they would be like, Muscle Beach, and, like, like do, like, arm flexes, and they were, like, skinny, small dudes, so it was hilarious. Um, but at the time, I was just immensely jealous of them. <laughs> I was like, how are these people doing it? Because we were, we were just players, and so we would get on, and I'm not saying in comparison of how good we are, but we would get on like the Pixies and just be like these normal looking fat schlubs playing our instruments. These dudes would come up and actually put on a show. And I've always been impressed by that because I can go on stage and say super personal, weird things and have people laugh at me. But to put that to music, like vulnerability in music, it just makes me uncomfortable. I can't, I can't do it in that way. I don't know why I've never been able to really to do that. So were you doing stand-up then, or did you not start that until you came to Huntington? No, I started stand-up at Shepherd University in the uh, ballroom upstairs in the student center. Uh, Dan Cummins came to school. He was like a, uh, well, still is a stand-up that was decently popular at the time, had a Comedy Central Presents and like some uh, specials, and he was doing a concert, and they kind of forced him into being a judge for an open mic that the school was holding, so it was like, Funniest pe person on campus. I'd never done it before. I wrote jokes for like a year, but never performed them. And I was like, this is my chance. And I go up there and get five minutes and do really well. I mean, compared to some people say their first time was it. Mine was, but it's always put this idea in the back of my head is like, am I just doing bottom level hacky stuff? So it's all, when you do well your first time, I feel like it is worse than doing terrible because that's what you expect. So I did well. 
and almost won the contest, but there was another guy there who literally was doing Dane Cook jokes, and he brought his whole fraternity. He got first place, but Dane, Dan Cummins came up to me and was like, I gave you any, and I still have this somewhere, where he gave me all, like all, a nearly perfect, he was like, nobody's perfect, so he gave me, it could have been all fives, he gave me one four instead of a five on one thing, so I, I don't know. He was a super big influence on me at the time, so that was like a big deal. So he was like, literally said, stick with it, you bearded fuck, like said it to me, and I... I guess I listened to him. So you finished school in 2010. What mm-hmm. brought you to Huntington then? It was a girl that I was dating. But Huntington always just, uh, I don't know. I like the people here and the culture. And I feel like... Had it, you been here before you moved down here? No. I visited like a, a month or so before I decided to move. And I had never been more terrified in my life of a... It was just surrounded by these crazy redneck people from the county. And then everybody in the city was like just homeless, it seemed to me. <laughs> from an, You're just saying from an outsider perspective for me. Uh, but then once I got you used to... You were looking at Huntington the way people from West Virginia look at like Chicago. Like that's the dangerous place. Exa- well, and if you talk to anyone from a county around here, they look at Huntington like the big city. They think of it's like crime ridden and like the people here are like scary or like there's just shootings so all the time. stupid. Exactly. And then that's, but see, that's how I felt at the time. And even what's hilarious had been to DC several times, Baltimore several times, but seventh Avenue in Huntington terrified me. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I think I know what it was. There was a guy outside of what's now, or I think a, a Z-Brick pizza, but it used to be a gay club uh, called Club Deception, and then it was Club something else. But anyway, there was a guy, I was walking past there, and he kept screaming, let's go, let's go, and like just trying to fight me. And, you know, normally that would happen. You'd just walk away, but he kept following me. And so I just kept, and this was like three days after I'd moved down here. Talk about homesick, man. I was like, I... Take I, me back to Martinsburg. Yeah, man. Which, it has its its uh, shitty charms. parts, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... So what was the state of stand-up in Huntington when you moved here then in 2010? At the time, the Funny Bone had been closed for some time and was just about to open up, which I found out after I moved here. But when I it's actually what drew me here was like, Oh, there's a comedy club. I just started this thing. I could actually live at a place and perform like all the time, you know, like get hooked up there. I was way more confident then too. I was like, yeah, it'll be easy, which is funny. Cause I did immediately start working there. I used to work at McDonald's when I first moved down to the one next to the stadium. And there was this lady, Lynn, I'm just calling out people's names, Lynn, sorry, Lynn, I have a feeling she might be dead. But anyway, she would just always, her voice was like, we need a sweet tea in the lobby. And she would just say it all the time. I heard that in my sleep. So she called me on my day off, and I had just got the job at the Funny Bone, but was still technically hired at McDonald's. She called me, was like, you're supposed to be in at your shift. Are you going to be in today? And I was like, no, I can't come in, Lynn. I got fucking stabbed and just told her I got stabbed. And she was like, what? And then I hung up uh, and never have seen her again. But I talked to this guy I worked with there, and he was just like, Lynn was probably just like, well, we got another, we lost another one to stabbing. <laughs> it was probably just common place to her but yeah so I, I started working at the funny bone and uh just met like cody lambert and uh adam culver and all these po- and then a guy that i used to be really close friends with but turned out to be a weirdo uh, but so many different people that i was super close to that kind of informed this area um but it was cool because you really could just see professional no matter how hacky some of them may have been, comedians who got paid to do it come through the, your 
town that you lived in and just watch them not just do a set but like perform all weekend so you could really see the little nuances of how they interacted with the crowd which like a lot of other comedians don't get like even you guys who came in after like with black sheep just never saw that aspect of comedy in the sense of like a different headliner every week and a different feature and a different host or whatever or getting to host those type of shows where people come through and like or uh, how a headliner set adjust from day to day about like oh if a joke doesn't work on friday it might be retooled for the saturday show e- or something. exactly yeah or even seeing ways to where that if it doesn't work all the whole time uh how they can just like find something to say to make up for the fact that it's not working here or whatever like yeah like little tags or something and What's funny is one of those people that I saw and I met with Cody, me, me and him had drinks with him at the bar, <laughs> who's like blown up now. Uh, and no matter how you feel about me, it is still weird. Uh, Theo Vaughn, who was like a feature at the time. It wasn't even like a headliner at the time. And I just remember thinking, this is one of the weirdest people I've ever met. But he, he did this bit about everyone in the 80s got molested. And like how it was just commonplace then, which, hey, name of the podcast. It's the <laughs> but, second time you've said yeah, it. Yeah, I, I guess I use that word a lot. You should, please use it as like some sort of promo, but no. <laughs> no, two on the nose. Yeah, Theo Vaughn joke about the eighties. Yeah, and he, he just and it was one of the. I'm like, I can't believe he's saying this right now. And also, as someone who was also, well, it was the early nineties who was mol- molested. Then I was just like, this is great. So instead of like freaking out about it or like people being weirded out by it, it was like a freeing thing where you're like, okay, that was way too common back then. And aren't we glad that that's over? You know what I'm saying? At least I hope so. But, but yeah, it is uh, super, super funny to see someone like that. And then for where he's at now, it is weird. What sort of jokes were you writing when you first started doing it in those like early like Huntington days for you? Almost strictly one liners, almost strictly one liners. And then um, <clears throat> it would it'd like play on words always. Like I used to do this joke about, man, it's so stupid. It was just like, um oh god it was about catching gummy or no yeah catching swedish fish with gummy worms like something like that i don't even remember the setup or but mm-hmm. that was essentially the bit was just like you know you think if you you <laughs> use gummy worms you'd catch swedish fish just and then like for some reason people would laugh at it i i don't know i guess they'd never been outside before or something it, but it was just just stuff like that and i am Glad that I kind of found a voice over time as much, even though I was reading my bio, Nate was all pr- promoting me on the internet last night on Instagram, like from, uh, like Hero the team. Town. Yeah. Yeah. And I was read my bio and I was like, man, I need to update this. I haven't thought about a bio in forever. I'm instead of writing bios, I'm just bioing right now. I'm like actually living life. I feel like, um, but I definitely need a new one. Although I do like that. It said I was the daughter of Cheryl Crow. I still think that's, Everyone should know that. Yeah, that's true. Just always ending the bio with a fake fun fact. Yeah, I mean, but it was a, uh, it was weird to see that because you know you separate when at the time I was like, oh yeah, this perfectly describes what I'm doing right now. But I read it and I was just like, okay, this is not exactly what I'm about. So in those final days of the funny bone, was there a feeling in like the weeks or months leading up to it shutting down that like, oh, we're not long for this world? Or did you just show up and it was closed one day? No, no. We we knew that it was going to close so much, in fact, that we knew me and the managers and, like, some of the other comics and employees there knew 
that there was a certain amount of time where so the church or whoever was buying it as is or like renting it out as is they weren't going to do anything with all the alcohol at the bar that we still had stocked up so we literally drank all of it and when i say all of it i mean we had the biggest rager this town's ever dude, had i'm talking i've never drank so much champagne in my life because they had stuff left over from like new years and like stuff that they were going to use like the next year i mean random wines and any kind of booze you could think of and we just drank it all i mean just like cleared it out in a night and it was probably like 15 20 people i mean may- maybe a little bit more maybe more closer to 30 people but still like that's a lot of a lot of alcohol and the hangover you get from just drinking a whole bottle of champagne by yourself is the worst hang like i've still to this day not been so hungover before it closing was that like a corporate level like funny bone brand decision or did pullman choose the church lease over y'all it was essentially that yes they could not pay their rent essentially the rent it's some company in ohio i don't know who owns it now i remember the owner or the guy who at least represented him was this guy named rob who would come and whenever he would come everyone would freak out and be like oh man rob's here you know the way you do with bosses but uh yeah so the management and sarah the lady who was the manager bless her heart tried everything she could um one thing that i tried to get both of them to know and that that i felt like we should have done was like work with the college you know but they seemed always super against and i really to this day i guess they assume college kids don't have money but really they have a lot of disposable money if they did some sort of college night had comics that were catering to them that's the type of thing that really keeps things going because like if like for example whoever the matt rife was at that time essentially for young comics that would have got them coming back in over and over again i feel like because those are the type of people who would go over and over again to a place if they like what's happening there you know what i mean um but yeah it, it was essentially just mismanagement like not being able to pay the rent um i mean literally i think one time the lights almost got shut off like the electricity just because the money was just because here's the thing you had to pay the artist it wasn't like like a a show where you could like oh here's this because this is what we made you have an agreed upon amount that you have to pay them and if you're not getting that money elsewhere from ticket sales which we gave a lot of free tickets away i remember um going to promote it on the radio with them several times like over at the uh i guess it's uh i don't know iheart or iheart radio it was at the time and and that was cool but also having to work in the ticket office and sell people or not sell people, fax people free tickets and things like that so we could put, you know, people in the seats. Um, but, yeah, it was just that. Like, they didn't have enough money to pay the artist, and then also they didn't recoup. I mean, they would have some shows. Like, I remember, do you remember John Cavarulo? Vaguely. He was, like, pretty big at the time, um, stand-up comic. He packed that place for an entire weekend, and then there would be, like, D.L. Hughley and people like that, like, before I was there, and then, like, um, Rob Schneider and... Uh, What's the dude? Uh, the Weasel. Uh, Polly Shore. Yeah, Polly Shore. And of course, Andy Dick. We all know that story. Um, but the, they would sell it, but they just couldn't do that consistently because then most of the time, those people would come. Those would be special engagement events. And that's when they're really trying to recoup their costs. But um, in a town that hates two drink minimums, and I'm one of those people too, I think that's the most bullshit thing ever, or two item minimums. I think it's when you're forcing people to do something, they're not going to do it if you just told them, you know, you have to get something. But when you tell them you have to get two of something, I think that's where people, like, lose their mind. It's like 
police. It's like telling people to wear masks during the pandemic. They're just going to have some idiots who hate it, you know. With that shutting down, I know there is a period where a bunch of like mics started popping up. Uh, but then things started to really centralize old black sheep, uh, now Clam DJ there by campus. Was that mic starting to pop off as like, oh, the one to go to, like a, a godsend for the scene at that time? Oh, yeah, for sure, because everything that we had before uh, always would fall apart, and it wouldn't, like, we were kept trying to get people to associate it in the same way like they did with the Funny Bone, like, this is where comedy happens. This is where you go to see it. And funny enough, around the time that, like, Tyler Childers was, like, thumbing it out at the Black Sheep was the same time we were kind of trying to build up the comedy scene. So it's weird because at any given week, you know, he'd be performing there on like a random Saturday or Sunday. And then that week we would have like our stupid comedy open mic. So Ian Nolte used to call it the uh, comedy litmus test. Like we, it was like a joke between us because we didn't know what to call it. So we would say random things each week on like the flyer or whatever, uh, or like however you're promoting it on Facebook. But yeah, it was the exact same idea. And the reason why that everyone comes to that, I think it's everyone comes to that, that realization is that in this town, people aren't going to, they want to watch you walk the tight rope. They're not going to just come and hear you talk, do the same jokes over and over. And they might mm -hmm. enjoy it if they're seeing you on like a showcase or something where they're like your friends or fans or whatever, but they're not going to just watch you do it over and over again. They want to see what you else you can come up with. The breakdown Nolte gave me was after the funny bone, there were a bunch of different mics and everyone was just going up and doing the same five minutes and That's there was exactly nothing it. new. And because of that, audiences stopped coming. Exactly. And, and when y'all realized that and you got black sheep and you made it a rule of like, this has to be new material, um, then that's when things really started to build back up. And it also weeded out a lot of the people who weren't going to do that, you know, like the uh, people that were just doing that same tired stuff over and over again that always worked at the Funny Bone or other places that they had performed. Uh, and it really, I really honestly do feel like it made the scene like 100 times better that's almost why like i feel like some of the scene's hottest times were at old black sheep oh my gosh yeah for sure when it would be standing room only we'd have to wait and i got there spring 2014 uh we would have to like wait in the hallway and be in people's ways they're trying to like get to their seats and everything yeah so that was right when i like right after when you was like right when i moved was like essentially right mm -hmm. after that there was yeah there was a little bit of crossover pre you leaving and uh then you went to new york and you went from one open mic like every two weeks to now be doing multiple a night like that must have been such a learning curve for you Oh, yeah. To get to that point where it's like, oh, I can actually get stage time here. Well, and it was, I remember coming back the first time, like, to visit, and uh, both Nate and Nolte, independently of each other, came up to me and were like, they were like, I don't know what you're doing, essentially, but keep doing it because you, like, have something now that, like, we don't have. Well, and Nolte said that I, that I don't have. And he's not exactly the most, like... <laughs> Complimentary. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, damn. Because it was just like, it wasn't that I had gotten better. It was just that I had 
practiced. Yeah, exactly. If there are... That 10,000 hours thing or whatever they said. That Malcolm Gladwell bullshit. That bullshit, exactly. If there are 52 weeks in a year, that means we're doing 20-some-odd open mics a year. So add it up minute-wise, right? If you're doing a five... What? You could do 25 open mics in a, a... a week and a half in New York or something like that? Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, all the time. Some of them, I tried to stay away from the ones where you had to pay, but I ended up getting in with a lot of the people who would run them so they would not charge you the fee on some of the better ones. That, But the main difference between those open mics and these are up there, you're mostly just performing in front of comedians. I mean, when I say mostly, I mean like literally that's usually what it is unless you're on an actual show. But down here, our mics are basically a show, which I think both have their their pros and cons. You know what I'm saying? So knowing that your peers think you are funny is a good thing. But in another way, it's like if it's a clicky situation, you're not going to accurately know until you test it on real people, which is how it is in a lot of New York. But here, the audience is going to be what normally like a peer of friends would be up there. And, and again, uh, both have their good things that they teach you. What do you think the biggest lessons you learned doing stand-up in New York were then? That I write from stage, and that is so hard to do around here. So, But, I mean, I'm slowly trying to develop this new, uh, what you call an hour, but it's been taking me like two and a half years or something where I have to like remember the pieces together in these little bitty sets that I get because I do want to make something new, you know? But it's just take and that because that's how I write. Whereas other people, they write down verbatim what they're going to say. They practice it and they say it. I literally write bullet po- points down, and I just talk about those things and basically try to squeeze whatever out of them that I can, and then find the way to word it on stage. So it's essentially more about the delivery of what I'm saying. But what I find about that is you don't have to worry so much about ripping other people off or whatever because it's not just a joke. It's just like your perspective on stage, like how you would talk to like your friends or whatever. But uh, that's the main thing I learned is that, because like you see, I see comics now and I'm like, this dude should just be going up and talking about this the way he's talking to me off stage and not just trying to write it and make it perfect because that doesn't work for everybody. And it works for a lot of people like Jerry Seinfeld or, uh, but even like Nate, our, you know, our friend Nate, he to me didn't get as good as he is until he started doing more of that, like to where he was instead of just, trying to be the late night talk show host guy just started going out and being himself and because he's naturally funny just be naturally funny in yourself and don't worry about if it's perfect and then it'll become perfect because you're going to say this funny thing that you found and you're going to say it in just the right way that made the audience laugh the first time and that's probably going to translate again and if it doesn't i mean then get rid of it but that's what i hope some of that made sense yeah it definitely does it's that that thing where you'll see a comic who's funny and personable and if you're screwing around they say something funny like and then they go on stage and they don't do whatever they were just doing exactly instead of exactly Mm -hmm. and they try to like have a forced stage presence to them rather than like being natural whatever it's as it's as if they have a character in that they have in mind that they're not going to deviate from Mm -hmm. And the character isn't, like, them embodying, like, a goofy character or whatever. It's just their, like, idealization of what a stand-up should be exactly. or needs to be or what they've gotten used to seeing in specials. Exa- exactly. It's like the comedy cosplay, to use cosplay as a, a metaphor for something. And it's like you're pretending to be. Or 
you're familiar with like what uh, I believe it was uh, Sartre talked about bad faith or some people call them Sartre or whatever. It was essentially like if you have that waitress that comes over to you, no one says waitress anymore, but at the time he wrote it, that's what he said. So he says a server comes over to you and it's that server that's like, hi, how can I help you guys? How you doing? How do you know in her eyes she fucking hates your guts and just wants your money? That's bad faith. So instead of just being herself and coming over to you and being like, hey, you know, that person that you really want to actually help and give a good tip to because you can tell they're not giving, you know, operating in bad faith um, or like a persona or a fake person. They're just pretending to be this so they can get whatever they want out of you. That's essentially what I feel like good comedy is. is It's like taking that away and it's just being bare bones like this. And, And of course, I love Emo Phillips and people who do characters, but even with that, there's a sense of like, uh, or like Paul Rubens who died recently. There's a sense of like this character is more of who they are than they are, if that makes sense. Because if they're That's a kid... That's how Joe Parra is. It, exactly. That's a perfect example. I can't tell if that dude's real or not. Is that a character? It... Look, if it is, he's played into it so much that I'm not sure he'd be I able think to he's separate himself that from person it. Now. Yeah. yeah. It's insane to me. That makes me laugh almost more than almost anything else in the world. I've tried doing my rip-off version of that before. Sometimes it's landed, sometimes it hasn't. Um, coming back from New York and having this like experience and material built up, was it exciting for you to get to do that album, or were you just looking to burn that material so you could start over? Oh, it, I think a combination of both. Not, uh, I think it was like... I was happy to have le- learn the skills that I have and have the material and, and know that it's going to work because there's like a, a huge like confidence in that, like a feeling that, that I don't even have all the time now because everything's still like kind of new as far as like what I'm talking about. Um, but feeling like I had a, a clear vision and voice throughout, you know, even though the jokes might have kind of been sporadic or whatever, I felt like it was a clear thing, like one solid thing. Um, that was nice, but it was also because of everything that happened to me and that led to that. And then the people that I had become friends with along the way or hurt along the way was also like therapeutic in a way. It was nice to just close the book on that chapter, which is what that's felt like. Kind of have a funeral for everything and then start over. Exactly. And I feel like the stuff that I'm doing now is definitely the best stuff that I've ever done, but I do want a way to like, for lack of a better word, capitalize on that and put something out there. Not, not just, I'm not, obviously I don't think I'll make money from it, but I just want again to have that feeling of like, okay, this is what I've done now. I can like scrapbook this and then move on to whatever else is there. And uh, Nate producing and kind of directing the special, putting it out there too. It is the first comedy album by a comedian in West Virginia too. I'm not sure any other stand-up has gone to the point where they put it out there. I know others have like recorded it and it's just sat on hard drive somewhere and it will probably never see the light of day, but it must be kind of cool to know like, Oh, I was the one who like made that statement, put it out there and, and kind of treated like a, a comedy cycle the way that like an LA or New York comedian would, but for our little neck of the woods. Well, yeah, and uh, it, I literally never think about it, but then when Nate brought it up in that post the other day, I did think like, oh man, that's cool. That's a real, that's a true thing. I mean, I'm sure that there's somebody who who's done it, like, or recorded, like you said, 
but uh, as far as I know, no one actually put it out. Put it out there. Yeah, and I I do get at least eighty eight Spotify viewers monthly, so it goes down to thirty six sometimes. But that's the highest I think I've seen it. But I I will. It's it is funny. I will just be on random comedy things, and that all of a sudden one of my bits from that album will come on. I'm like, does this mean that I finally like myself? That like the algorithm thinks that I would appreciate myself? It's wrong, but uh, but that is a weird thing because I'll be listening to like like I don't know uh, Joe DeRosa or some random comedian. All of a sudden that'll come on, uh, which I like on shuffle. Yeah, exactly. Like or like uh, Bill Squire from based out of Cleveland, or like just another random uh, Dustin Meadows, who is another guy who I just so I guess it just associates it with other like local comics or certain type of comedy but it feels i feel happy to be part of that group like my contemporaries or whatever at this point where do you think your ambitions doing comedy are well my son just started well we went to orientation today at his school and i feel so alive and free like that that i know it sounds messed up but the school system's gonna get and i know that means that like i can't just be out at a bar randomly and drink because i'm gonna have to take him to school or in the morning and things like that but at the same time it's it's like this point where it's like oh yeah i he's gonna get incorporated in the system and so it is his sister and then i'm gonna have more time to like actually do the things that i want to do and i'm, I'm not just gonna be like because for a while i was a stay-at-home dad like during the pandemic and stuff i mean work from home for a while and that's what I'm doing now but so so I kind of looked at that as like a ball and chain for a while you know the whole joke that people say is like kids like kind of weigh you down dream killers they used to be called which is weird but I feel like it's the opposite like I feel like if they see me still pursuing this thing until I'm like Billy Summers' age that's going to be like a, a thing that shows that like hey you can still do these things that you really like to do um at any age, like you don't have to give up on what you want to do. Cause I do feel like I have something that not everyone has. Um, like, so I'm just going to keep doing it. That's my goal. My goal is to just to still keep doing it. And unless like, you know, I die, uh, and play this over and over again after that happens, if it happens, um, oh, we're playing the whole episode <laughs> at the funeral. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make please everyone do. sin. Let silence. me say that now, if I do die, uh, like unexpectedly, please do bits please come do i'm not joking i don't care who arranges it don't feel like you can, like say this to whoever's involved like if it's my sisters or my family or chelsea say he said he wanted this and told us to tell you he doesn't care what you think we're gonna do it because i, I do feel that way please have people do jokes please people. should i give people the light at your funeral yes or did you already be, take be out a dick the about it <laughs> no yeah one the once once i'm gone the light is gone the light of huntington is gone no but but for real, uh, please do that. But yes, uh, I just want, I just want to keep doing it. I want to find a, again. I want to make another uh, album or a special or whatever. I've I've thrown I've thrown out ideas of like um, doing one that's similar. You know how you guys do those like uh, was it forty eight hour movie festivals or seventy two hour festivals? I want to do that with a sp sp like a or movie contest. I want to do that with a comedy special. Nate told me it's completely crazy and that I could probably never do it, and he's probably right. Where you record like a special at like 8 p.m. on a Friday night and it be out by Monday? Essentially, yeah. So essentially, it, have it just be whatever it is and just release it. 
like let it because like I think that I have enough material I could do that and I can riff enough to do that but it might be mediocre but I mean it's not like my last one wasn't either so you know it's not like I can hide behind that wall well uh we'll wrap on this what do you think your best show was where was it what was the crowd like were you just on one that night my best show ever yeah or your favorite show because those can have, be different i have a few so one of the best shows i ever did was when i lived in new york and i was performing at and maybe you'll know what this place is there's a place in new jersey right over across the river called maxwell's which like bruce springsteen played in my chemical romance shot a video nirvana smashing pumpkins Yo, green day all played yeah yeah and it was just like a dream to be able to perform on the same exact stage in the same room as them in the small ass like back. It was a restaurant in the front and just had all these stories about those bands in the back. And I was just on fire. I was like doing these weird comparisons between Virginia, West Virginia and New York and New Jersey. And the crowd was just loving it. Like, uh, and most of my set was just riffed. And that was probably my favorite. Is it still running? Yeah, we're going. It, it, that was probably my favorite show i've ever done just because of like the i don't know the mythology behind the the, the fact venue that, yeah exactly and then i would say the best set that i ever had or that i ever felt like i was on fire was probably and this is a bit embarrassing in parkersburg at these shows that like this just do chris abel's uh and this guy who after Trump got elected the second time, just went, or not, no, what am I saying? The first, the first time. time. Whew, thank God it was just one term. It felt so long. But anyway, after Trump got elected and then didn't get elected again is what I was going to trying to say. He like freaked out and just became, you know how those people in your life just became super more conservative. What was, was this venue? This dude named Danny Ray. But the venue was called The Hideout in Parkersburg. Okay, was this the one that had like the restaurant space in the front Exa and then you would go back and exactly. there would be the back bar? It was just so small. It was packed. Uh, I got paid a really good amount of money to do it and got a free hotel, which was dope. Anytime that happens, it's dope. Um, and I was just, it was like, it felt like these people came to just see me, even though that was not the case. I was just whoever the headliner was that week. But I mean, every, it was like linger on every word. You know, those moments like, and you can understand what I'm saying, where it's like the audience is quiet, but it's not like an awkward quiet where they're all just staring at you and you feel that feeling of like, everyone's engaged. Exactly. It, it was that times like 20, dude. It was like, I could have done anything, said anything, and they would have just followed me out the door and like threw me on their shoulders like Rudy or something, dude. It was, it was awesome. So that was probably, I feel like, the best I ever did, where I felt all the material was there. I knew everything I was going to do. I didn't miss a step, and I could still just be loose with the crowd. Also was hammered, but in a good way, not like, you know, slurring or anything like that. Enough of a buzz. Yeah, exactly. So it was just like, a, it was perfect. It was just a perfect show, and that's probably... But I've had tons of good ones here in Huntington, too. Lots of those old Black Sheep shows are some of my favorite ones. When it was the small room, no stage, just on the floor, and everybody was crammed in. I, I, I like stuff. I like stuff like that. Keep up to date with Josh McDonald on Instagram. Find his album Hero in Town on Spotify or Bandcamp. If you liked hearing him on today's episode, 
he recently did an episode of a podcast called It's Comedy Baby with Huntington Comics' Zach Smith and Derek Stacy. Thank you for listening to Commonplace. If you liked today's episode, I ask that you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend. These are free ways that help the show in a big way. Our show is hosted and produced by me, Nathan Thomas. Our theme song is Rescio by Goodwolf from the album Car in the Woods. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Commonplace. Yeah.